Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am. It's an old friend of mine. Um, he's in an unlikely situation, which I'll describe in a moment. Uh, his name is Peter Foster. He is an English expatriate in Canada. So I'm really looking forward, Peter, to getting the Canadian perspective from you because I, I haven't got haven't got any many, many Canucks or, or Canuck residents on my podcast and I think you'll be a very good guide and the reason you'll be a good guide of course is that you're like me you're a what you call yourself a Thatcherite don't you I call myself a Thatcherite in Trudopia which is what Canada is essentially a Thatcherite in tr- Trudopia so you'll be able to describe Canada from from the from a, a perspective that I would understand, because I have to say, my first question to you, Peter, as an, as, a, as an Englishman living in Canada, is why? Why would you... I mean, I would fit, if I were living in Canada, I don't, God knows, England, Britain is bad enough right now. But I reckon that if I went to Canada, I would feel like Damien the Omen devil child when he goes into the, into the church. Because I'm not sure I could handle living in Trudopia. So how do you cope? Um, well, how I got here really is has a lot to do with Britain in the 1970s. And you were just a child, so you wouldn't remember that terribly well. But when I left Britain in 1976, it seemed to be circling the toilet bowl of history. Um, I'd actually been to Canada, or believe it or not, on a rugby tour and it seemed like it seemed like a good a good place at the time. So anyway, I came here, and in fact, I made my name as a journalist by writing about what a mess the first Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, made of the economy. Um, so, yes, it was. I mean, it was. I was. I was saying. I wasn't saying bad things about Canada, but I was certainly saying bad things about the government at that time. And of course, we had, we now have another Trudeau who's equally screwing up the economy. Yes, if, if indeed he is a Trudeau. I mean, where, where are you on, on the theory that he's actually Fidel Castro's son? Because there is a remarkable physical resemblance, isn't there? Yeah, well, uh, yes. Uh, and political I, I, resemblance. I think the timing, the, the, the timing was not quite right for that. I mean, certainly ideologically, yes. uh, both he and his father uh, were very amenable to, uh, to uh, the thoughts of Fidel. But, but no, I, I, I don't think that's very likely. So... Basically, you fled decaying England, and, and I can see that England in the Britain in the nineteen seventies was a basket case, wasn't it? And and it must have felt like there was no hope. There was there was no coming back from where Britain had gone. You know, the the, the what was it uh, when the when the dead lay unburied and the rubbish piled high yeah, high in the yes. streets. That kind, the winter of discontent. Yes, no, we had we had you know Ted Heath and the three day week and and of course Maggie Thatcher hadn't come along. No, if if I'd known Maggie Thatcher was coming, perhaps I might have stayed. <clears throat> yes, but as I say, you know, I mean, Canada looked like the the land of opportunity, and it was a very rich place, and I mean, very attractive in many ways. Um, in the Canadians, from my perspective, you know, if they had something to do, they would just get on with it. Whereas in Britain. British people seem to be brilliant at finding reasons why they couldn't do things. Yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm pleased to so, tell you, Peter, that that's So that exists. was why Canada was attractive. Yes. yes. I can see that. I can see that. Um, in, in a way, I, I wonder whether, 
whether the nineteen the experience of living in Britain in the nineteen seventies is 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 really rather like the experience of living in Britain now. I mean, you you I don't know how much you feel this living a, a, across the pond, but. I think we on the conservative, uh, the genuinely conservative side of the argument, or certainly the Thatcherite, limited government, etc. side of the argument, look around rather as you must have done when when Ted Heath was there, and thinking, well, if even a conservative prime minister can't do any, any anything conservative, if even he concedes to the left all the time, then what hope is there for for Britain? Yes, well, I mean, I, I of course, I'm I'm observing it from a distance, and I'm yeah. much con- more concerned about what's happening in Canada right now. But, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, the thing I write about in this collection of, of essays that we'll eventually get round to. Yes, yeah, so you, um, you'll get you know, implied, is don't you worry. The world is threatened. Is threatened. Sorry, I said the the world is threatened by new forms of socialism now that didn't <clears throat> didn't really exist um in such a virulent form or indeed at all in the 1970s they were just they were just beginning but now the whole world is is threatened by i think by a, a green depression uh, yeah um but, but I, 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 the, one of the great things about uh, the, the leftward twist on history <clears throat> is that the new deal saved capitalism from itself in the 1930s in fact that's completely false what made the, the the Great Depression great was the interference and the uncertainties of the New Deal. So those who are pressing a Green New Deal are in fact threatening, I think, a Green Depression, not just on both sides of the pond, but virtually everywhere. Yes. Just tell me, before we go on to the to environmentalism, uh, which, which, which is one of our shared interests, um, concerns, you've, you've studied, you've studied, economic history and i think you've you've written about it very entertainingly in your your last book which uh, remind me what it was called it was called why we bite the invisible hand yes yes um i can't remember whether you dealt with the new deal and and and, and how it's been rewritten by hysteria by historians to as, as a kind of how capitalism was rescued when it's the opposite. Just, just, yes, just I mean, explain it, to me a bit. You know, economics, I su- economics, I suggested in that book, has been going astray, you know, for well over 100 years, uh, that obviously the economists who are favoured by governments are the ones who can come up with interventionist ideas and new policies. So free market economists, you know, like Friedrich Hayek, uh, obviously weren't going to be employed uh, by governments. And that, that trend has obviously, has obviously continued. <clears throat> but but certainly, you know, I mean, the, the falsification of history goes back to uh, uh, the Industrial Revolution and, you know, the, the poor people in the mines. And then it goes on um, through, the, through the robber barons uh, and the Great Depression. Uh, and, of course, it, it becomes a bit more difficult to falsify history as we get closer to the present. But do you think you it does, though? That's still going on. I, Sorry, I, I, I'm I'm always amazed, um, or, or at least shocked, by by just how easy it is to to rewrite history. I mean, and, and and it does seem to me that the liberal left has been controlling the narrative. Well, you say for for over a century, yeah, and I'd probably agree with you. But how did they how did they get away with it? How did they they manage to rewrite FDR, who was who was ghastly? Uh, hyper-interventionist, um, as you say, he prolonged the the 
the Great Depression. Um, how, how have they managed to rewrite history so that nobody has written a compelling... Why has is, why is nobody on our side written the compelling book which shows that actually this is rubbish? Well, actually, I mean, there are compelling books. There's a, there's a lady called Amity Schles, yeah, who wrote a book called The Forgotten Man, which in fact points out that, you know, the, the, the history is completely falsified. And um, <clears throat> the fact that the Great Depression went on for so long um, was because of FDR's interventionist policies and, and his demonization of the rich. Uh, of course, which we we see perennially with socialists, and that's never and you know bleating about inequality and not being concerned about how well the people at the bottom end of the scale are doing. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that the the poorest people today have any comparison with the poorest people of of a hundred or fifty or even twenty years ago. They're they're infinitely better off. There's a there's a great um, quote by. Um, Matt Ridley, uh, who points out that poor people today, you know, have running water, or most of them have running water, refrigerators, televisions, telephones, etc. And and he points out that uh, the robber barons didn't have these things. Mm. But but somehow we don't ever seem to be able to appreciate the material world. Um, So, of course, this has gone, de-emphasized the material world. So now we we talk about racism and systemic racism and so on. Yes. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, the, yeah, the problem is people are not interested. People don't understand history. But what I said in, in Why We Bite the Invisible Hand, uh, I explained leftism generally by the fact that people do not understand economics. They're morally confused about the, the processes and results of, of capitalism. And that economic ignorance and moral confusion is inevitably exploited by the left. And this is perennial. So, I mean, each generation is born as essentially as a hunter-gatherer because our views haven't had time. Our, our, our mind hasn't had time to, to evolve because capitalism has come along at such an incredible rate. Um, so, you know, we're, we're inclined to believe, you know, what, what a great uh, economist called David Henderson called do-it-yourself economics, you know, which is inclined towards unreflective centralism. That the answer to economic problems is for is for somebody in the middle or somebody at the top to dictate things, and and that is exactly what we see with the Green New Deal. Yes, I suppose it. Yes, um, it is counterintuitive, isn't it, to to um, imagine that the well, Adam Smith dealt with this, of course. It is counterintuitive to imagine that it is possible for the market to distribute things more fairly and more efficiently than anything else. It's, 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 it comes to us naturally to imagine that it's far better to have some presiding authority to split things up than it is to, that, than, than yes. it is laissez-faire. Absolutely, because I mean, our minds, our minds evolved in groups of, of only 150 people, you know, where there, there, was, there was no money, no technological advance. Uh, no, no extensive trade, and and to to an extent, we're still haunted by the assumptions of that period. I mean, I suggested in Why We Bite the Invisible Hand that we're hunter gatherers with iPhones. This um, actually and, and was, this inevitably has an impact. It was my favourite bit of of that excellent book, um, which I which I occasionally wheel out, and I probably misquoted or misrepresented your argument slightly, but 
just remind me, how, how long were we hunter-gatherers for? I mean, we, we were hunter-gatherers much, much longer than we were kind of civilised um, living in cities and stuff. Yes, I mean, we, we were hunter-gatherers for over a million years, you right. know, for so thousands of thousands and thousands of generations. Yes. And we started, you know, farming only, what, 10 or 20,000 years ago. So the number of generations since uh, settled society is minute. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, evolutionary psychology is based on that by, um, you know, looking at the ancestral environment and seeing how those conditions might might frame the way we look at things uh, today. Um, and in fact, since I wrote that book, I came across a, a wonderful piece that, uh, talking about morality. Uh, and Adam Smith, you know, talked about the sort of mundane morality of the market. You just, you know, do the decent thing. You don't hurt other people. But magnanimous morality, on the other hand, is all about uh, sacrificing for other people. And that's the sort of morality that was admired in the ancestral environment or that developed in the ancestral environment. Um, I mean, I, and I think that's one of the reasons why corporate executives get into corporate social responsibility, because they want to be seen as magnanimous rather than merely mundane. Uh, but of course, they're being magnanimous with other people's money. So that's, that's getting ahead of myself. <laughs> yes. The book. But did, did you... I, I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm sort of delling-polifying your, your argument, but I, but I, I think what you, what you were suggesting was that those of us with a conservative stroke free market stroke libertarian mindset have more evolved brains than, than liberal lefties who are essentially stuck in the hunter-gatherer age and they are still stuck in the value system whereby if there is a mammoth and you've killed the mammoth, and you've got 150 people in the village, then then it, it really is important to give everyone their fair share because there's only one mammoth to go round. And what what the what the mentality of the hunter gatherer age doesn't understand is that economies can expand through division of labour, through through improved efficiency, through all, all the things that we recognise as, as having contributed to the growth of Western civilization and, and Western industrial civilization and our economies. And it, it's the left are, are obsessed with this idea that things aren't fair because they imagine that there is only one mammoth to go round and, it, and everyone has to have their fair share. Is that right? Is that fair representation of your... Uh, well, absolutely. The, the, it's, it's, the, it's the zero-sum mentality mm. uh, which we're haunted by, which leads us to believe that profits are somehow subtracted from, from the common good. Uh, but, of course, it's not, it's not just... Uh, I mean, the, the, the leftist politicians maybe innocent of economics, but they also subconsciously and automatically understand that they can exploit these feelings. And then they're not really, a lot of them are not really concerned with the welfare of society. They're concerned with power. Yes. And that is that is the important third element. You know, there's economic ignorance, there's moral confusion, and there's the lust for power, which automatically exploits the other two. Yes. Yes. Tell me, tell me before we go on to, to, to greenery. Tell me a bit about your your background. What what was your career trajectory? Um, well, I, I was I was born and educated in England. Um, you know, I, I studied economics at Cambridge, not terribly hard. In fact, I didn't really develop an interest in 
economics till about 10 years after I left was it was, was Cambridge in those days very Keynesian did you get exposed to Hayek at all or any or Mises or anything like that uh, no it was it was it was totally Keynesian yeah so you know Adam Smith didn't crop up in my economic education anywhere are you serious um, at Cambridge I, 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 I did come Sorry? At Cambridge, Adam Smith did not crop up. No, no Adam Smith at all. I, I did somehow come across the road to serfdom, but, but I, uh, I, I think that may not have been part of the curriculum. Uh, but anyway, as you say, it was, it was, it was totally Keynesian. Um, so, I mean, after that, I wound up working for the Financial Times of London uh, for three years. And then, as I say, since I thought the country was circling the toilet bowl of history, I decided to come to Canada and I got a job with a newspaper here, um, which was a broadsheet weekly called the Financial Post. And then having worked there for three years, I went off to write a book about the Alberta oil industry and it was called The Blue-Eyed Shakes. And I continued writing books, um, essentially, and being a freelance magazine journalist um, until the National Post um, which was related to the Financial Post, uh, was started by Conrad Black in 1998. Uh, and I went there as a columnist and I wrote columns for 20-odd years. I mean, in fact, I still can write when I want. It's just that I want to write a bit less right. often these days. Uh, uh, but, I mean, you know, the National Post was a tremendous newspaper and it was quite unusual in that it... I mean, it was populated by people from the, from the Daily Telegraph and it was much more conservative than anything else in Canada. So well, my friend, my friend Tim Rostron used to write for the used to work for the National Post, didn't he? I think I know I know Tim Rostron quite well. Um, I mean, he's now he's now in the publishing business. But yes, he was he was the arts editor, I think. He was the, he was my best man. Um, I, I, oh, really? I, I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I missed him greatly. Um, and um, sorry, just rewinding a second because you've you've told me all sorts of interesting things there. Um, first, can I just say how utterly shocked I am that Cambridge University? It kind of confirms all my worst suspicions about Cambridge being a sort of Cromwellian establishment. But I mean, really, <laughs> how can you how can you how can you call yourself the second best university in the world um, if? Your economics course doesn't even teach; only teaches you Keynesianism. I mean, isn't I mean, isn't that a terrible indictment of of the kind of degree that you did? Well, I, I think I should point out, as I as I implied, suggested before, that in fact I wasn't the most assiduous of students. But I, but I then I think that must be due to the fact that uh, the courses didn't seem that relevant to me. In fact, I, I went to Cambridge to read classics. Right. And I switched to economics the day before lectures began because I thought economics was, was more relevant to the world, you know, and I've joked since that I might have been better off staying with, with classics. You probably would. But, you'd, be prime, um, you'd be prime minister. Yes, <laughs> yeah. No, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. So, so uh, but what I wanted to ask you was the Financial Times. Now, I think of the Financial Times as pretty much the belly, belly of the beast when it comes to the globalist New World Order with Davos, with, with, um, with Europhilia, with, with the Green Agenda, the, new, the Green New Deal, everything that's wrong with the world economically. The, the, the Financial Times is, is after it like a rat up a drainpipe, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, was it, was it yeah, that no, bad I mean, then? Yeah, it, no, no. I mean, I, you know, again, I, it's, it's changed completely. It was much, much more uh, genuinely conservative 
in the 70s, much more free market oriented. And as you as you note, I mean, I've noticed it going in this strange and dangerous direction since. Any, any, any theories on why that happened or how it happened? I, no, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, obviously it was, uh, I mean, it was just following the, the, the general drift of a, an increasingly bureaucratic, social democratic world. I, I mean, as a, as a fellow hack, a fellow conservative hack, one of the few, you must have noticed this trend that I've noticed, which is that even nationally conservative newspapers in the last 10, 15 years have drifted inexorably leftwards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, except the, the Wall Street Journal is, is still hanging in. Um, I haven't seen the Telegraph lately. That seemed to be hanging in when I looked mm. at it a few years ago. I don't know. Uh, the the Economist seems to have gone. Well, the Economist is 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 um, like a kind of glossy magazine version of the of the FT, isn't it? Of the Pink Pinken. Yes. Yes. Same yeah. same politics, same problem. Um, yes. So yeah. I mean, and that I mean, that's very much the case in in Canada as well. I mean, the, the National Post soldiers on, but it's it's sort of a. Uh, not quite as not quite as right as it used to be. Oh, Although really? it's got, still got some some good columnists. No, no, it's 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 still you know it still has Conrad Black and uh, and a number of other excellent uh, excellent writers. Um, but the I mean the, the problem is that most most reporters and most papers are becoming more and more woke. That's um, that's certainly so, true. Yeah. Yes. The, I but but the, some of the columns in the National Post uh, just are absolutely outstanding on a, on a global level. You know, the, I, I don't, I can't really say I read much of the Canadian press or the, much of the US press. Or the, we, we, we tend to be biased towards our own newspapers because who's got the time? But I quite often read columns by you and Terence Corcoran and Lawrence Solomon, um, yes, you you three have been really at the top of of the game when it comes to criticizing this this scary green agenda, that, which is, which is interesting. That I mean, Canada, what what you seem to have the best and the worst almost in Canada. I mean, who 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 have you got? You've got lunatics like I mean, eco fascists like Climate Barbie, who I I, I enjoyed the essay your essay yes. on her. <laughs> Uh, what's her real name? Kath McKenna, Catherine. Catherine McKenna, yes. Catherine McKenna. Um, who else? Have you you've got Suzuki, David Suzuki. He's another appalling green greenie. You gave us, you exported to us. Thank you very much. The appalling Mark Carney. So thanks for yes. that. Tell me a bit about Mark Carney. I mean, tell me why I hate him because I do. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I I, I mentioned in the book that. Uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, sorry, Justin Trudeau is obsessed. With, I mean, Canada has a chip on its shoulder. Yeah. So Canadians talk about punching above their weight, which means essentially doing damage out of size, uh, out of proportion to their own size. Unfortunately, the damage is done to themselves. And I, but I suggest that when it comes to to climate, uh, we have punched above our weight in 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 producing people like. Uh, Mark Carney, and before him, Maurice Strong, who is, I think, the most important man of whom nobody's ever heard. I anyway, think you're right. You know, I, I, yeah, no, I mean, Carney is a complete successor to uh, Strong. 
you know, and I, I've been writing about him as a menace since he was governor of the Bank of Canada. I mean, oh, he, really? He, so you could see this coming? Well, look, maybe we should before we talk about about Carney. Just give me a. I, I wrote about Morris Strong in in my book Watermelons, and and you're right. He's he is. I think he is the. He's the godfather of 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 the Green New Deal, isn't he? Really, he's he's a with communist yes. sym- sympathies. Uh, he he was one of the first people to realise that environmentalism could be used to advance a new world order of essentially socialism. So tell me about him. Yes, and he, he, he was absolutely at the centre of this. You know, and people haven't heard of him because he, he operated the stratospheric UN level. But he was the man who, run, who ran the first conference on the human environment in Stockholm in 1972, which was really the start of sustainable development. <clears throat> then he was on the Brundtland Commission in the 80s, a very important member, where they came up with this ridiculous definition of sustainable development as meeting the needs of the present without jeopardizing the needs of the future, when, of course, we have no idea what the needs of one person are, let, let alone of the entire present and future. Uh, then he ran the conference at Rio in 1992, out of which the whole climate change bureaucratic fandango came along with biodiversity. Um, And he was idolized within the UN system because he was a genius at setting up agendas and programs and organizing conferences. I mean, he was was the bureaucrat's dream. Um, I remember I I met his second wife, a a mystic Scandinavian lady uh, named Hannah Marstrand. And she said in front of Strong that before she met him, she'd heard that he was either a genius or a fraud. And I thought, well, why should those be alternatives? Why couldn't he be a genius and a fraud? And in fact, I think he is, or he was a genius and a fraud. But no man was more important in embedding this sustainability corporate social responsibility agenda. I mean, he he sucked in the private sector because he started the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. He was a big man at at Davos. Uh, Of course, he he fell out of favor a bit because he was was involved in the Iraqi oil for food scandal when it was discovered that he had uh, taken a million dollars of money laundered from Saddam Hussein. Um, But still, he he was still idolized uh, but he, he was the, the, the biggest menace. And to understand where we are, you have to understand his career. Yes. So he started out, didn't he, as a sort of on the lowest level at the UN and quickly worked his way up. Now, somehow he managed to become a billionaire on the way, didn't he? No, he, he was never a billionaire. This is one of the, the myths that I think he liked perpetrating. Ah. In fact, he was never enormously well up. He, he started um, as a pass officer at the age of 18. And how he got that job is remarkable. I mean, I've th- been working on a biography of Strong for a long time. Oh. Um, but but he, he claims he was obsessed by, you know, doing good and the UN. And he couldn't get into the bureaucracy in, in Ottawa. I mean, he was only at the UN for like a few weeks uh, and he couldn't get into the bureaucracy in, in Ottawa. So he decided he would go off and become a successful businessman, which he did. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. So at a relatively young age, I think in his, in his early to mid thirties, he, he wound up running a very politically influential company called Power Corporation. 
And he used that as a springboard where he, he, he wound up in the development business in Ottawa and he created the Canadian International Development Agency and remarkably managed to have himself appointed as the head of this um, UN conference in Stockholm in 1972. Uh, and he's been in the back rooms. Um, I mean, he's, he was described as a Rodex socialist, if anyone remembers what a Rodex was. But his, his list of contacts was absolutely incredible. So, I mean, in every way, he was a remarkable man, except personally. Somebody, somebody said you wouldn't, you wouldn't pick him out of a crowd of two. And I suggest that, in fact, he might have a chance if Lord Stern was the other person. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? He, but, he, was, he, was he not charismatic or...? or? Was, was he just? Uh, no, just... he was anti-charismatic. He was anti-charismatic. Right. I mean, he was, he was a a dull speaker. He was asthmatic, and he sounded. Uh, I mean, he, he sounded as if he was delivering a message after running up several flights of stairs all the time. When he was, uh, especially when he was when he was justifying his his beliefs. I mean, I I interviewed him a lot over a, over a twenty year period, until I eventually wrote a, mar- a magazine article with the title "Morris Strong Wants to Save the World." But who will save the world from Morris Strong? Oh, nicely uh, summed up. And he, and he, and he, and he, he went off me after that. So we didn't. Did speak. he now? Gosh, you. Well, listen. I want to read this book, Peter. That's that's really. I mean, you do owe it to the world to to reveal who it is that's brought this stuff upon us. Because I, you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, re- the... you carry on. Sorry, James. Sorry. Carry on. No, no. I mean, I, I, I say I'm one of the few people I know who who knows a bit about him. But you, you sound like you've you've got his number well i mean i've i've been as i say studying studying him a bit more and he has the most remarkable career he came from abject poverty abject poverty but i point out how at the age of 18 he met david rockefeller which in itself is absolutely remarkable yes and eventually uh i mean there's this rumor that somehow Strong is is part of some great corporate scheme to take over the world, but it's completely upside down. Strong merely used corporations, and and ironically, the Rockefellers in the end came round to Strong's way of thinking rather than Strong coming coming round to their way of thinking. And the the various Rockefeller foundations and funds are now completely devoted to sustainable development. That, listen, Which, of course, is anti-development. I've sort of get, we're going to have a break here because I've got to dash off and do this thing, and then we're going to continue this because this is just too interesting not to talk about. Okay. So, Peter, you were telling me about Maurice Strong, which I I, I think we, we we need to mine this scene a bit more because I think you mentioned that word sustainability, which he effectively put on the world map, didn't he? The the, the the Brundtland Commission in when was it? You say seventy two. It was in the mid the mid eighties. I oh, think eighty seven. Their report okay. came out. Right, but so so from that little acorn, the massive world dominating oak tree of sustainability, which which is embedded in every corporate structure now. Every every local council wants to be sustainable. Every local government, every where well, you name it, it's everywhere. It's inescapable, and it all starts with Maurice strong and you mentioned that he had a sort of negative charisma is there any do you, do you reckon that this is common to a lot of people because you you mentioned that um lord stern author of course of the infamous stern report also has negative charisma do you reckon that that, that yes 
you reckon that, that, that negative charisma is part of their evil secret? Um, well, then you've got Mark Carney, of course, Canada's other great gift of the world. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's pretty heavy on charisma. So, oh. um, I mean, well, you've got maybe ban if, if you go back to Ban Ki-moon, yeah. the last uh, Secretary General of the UN, he certainly had anti-charisma too. Right. Um, okay. So I, uh, can I say something about sustainability? Oh, please do. Yeah. Well, you know, the the, the first uh, the first victim in under socialism is language, as we know, as Orwell pointed out, and sustainable uh, has taken over from social as what Friedrich Hayek called a weasel word. That is, it, it doesn't just suck meanings from from words it's attached to; it often reverses them. So, social democracy is uh, is authoritarianism. Social market economy is a uh, is an economy with crippled markets. Social justice is is based on force, um, and now, of course, we have social license, uh, which sounds as if it, you know, social license to operate. That corporations apparently need this, but what it what it in fact amounts to is stopping corporations from operating. Anyway, so sustainable has become has taken over as the great weasel word. And if you think about it, it, you can't object. Who could object to sustainability? So you have to look at what it actually means. And when you look at it, you find that what sustainable development means is bureaucratically, centrally con controlled development. And uh, Mark Carney is a big fan of sustainable finance. And what sustainable finance means is keeping finance away from fossil fuel companies. So, you know, it's 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 one we have to look at the meaning of these words, and they are often uh, highly subversive. Again, corporate social responsibility has got social in there, plus responsibility. I mean, who can be against responsibility? Yes. So we, we, we have to look at the way the socialists use language to corrupt, well, not to corrupt thought, but just to stop thought, essentially. Well, another example, of course, is that brilliant slogan, Black Lives Matter. I mean, who could who could disagree that Black Lives Matter? Who who would want to set themselves against that that noble noble precept? And yet, yes, of course. I, but you mustn't say that all lives matter because yeah. that's meant to be insulting black people. Yes, and you know, I've I've I'm I don't want to get into the into the debate about the the history of black people, but. If you look at, at Black Lives Matter, this um, this Marxist part of the movement, one of the demands is an end to fossil fuels. Yes. So you can see that what we're talking about is social revolution. It's not it's not uh, dealing with any systemic racism or police brutality. It's about destroying Western society. Yes, most people still don't see that, do they, Peter? I mean, if okay, so. The the man in the street probably thinks that um, imputes good faith to the environmental movement. I think still, despite the despite the the economic damage done by Extinction Rebellion, I mean, you and I and people like us who've been writing about this stuff for years, we, we we've swung around a few people, but still, I would say the the current of history is with the environmentalists, isn't it? They, 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 yes, and, and you, you, you mentioned Extinction Rebellion, and of course this is meant to be a group of idealistic young people, but of yeah. course it's manipulated by others. But this, I, you know, 
miseducating the young and using them as a tool again goes back to our friend Murray Strong. If you look at his great socialist doorstop wish list agenda 21, which came out of the uh, out of the Rio conference in 1992, it said very specifically that children should be educated about environmental environmentalism and sustainability from the earliest age. But then it went on to say these miseducated children should then be invited into the political process. So what Greta Thunberg in a way is, is the, is the ultimate result of this. Uh, although in fact, there was, there was an example at Rio. Uh, I mentioned David Suzuki in, 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 in how dare you, um, yes. as he's probably not so well known outside Canada as people like, you know, but he's inescapable within Canada, isn't he? I mean, he's a, yeah, no, he's a, I mean, he, and he's one of the, one of the most trusted people in Canada, which is, is he? utterly bizarre, but, but that is because he reads the scripts of a program of a, of a CBC program called The Nature of Things. So people think he's this nice avuncular figure that's concerned with the environment. But when he goes up, when he's off screen, he's absolutely crazy. I mean, he's a he's a rabid climate change fanatic. He thinks that countries like Bolivia and Ecuador and Cuba have valuable lessons to teach us. But anyway, getting back to the, mis- the miseducation part, at the 1992 conference, his 12-year-old daughter, Severn Suzuki, was allowed onto the podium to say that she was frightened to go outside because of holes in the ozone layer, and she was even frightened to breathe because of the chemicals in the atmosphere. Now, this to me seems like an example of child abuse. Yes. In fact, she seems to have survived pretty well and is now nagging her father not to fly, which is rather ironic. But, you know, this this miseducation of children is absolutely central. And Greta Thunberg is perhaps the latest and greatest example. I mean, I feel sorry for her. She's been exploited. She's a girl who has severe anxiety. And nobody seems to think it's bizarre that we're listening to a 16 or 17-year-old talk about... Matters of climatology about which he cannot possibly understand. Yes. And all she can do is regurgitate what she's been told. Yes. And this, this use of children is, of course, um, uh, it's straight out of the totalitarian playbook. I mean, the, the communists, you think of the Red Guard um, in, in, in Mao's China, you think of the Hitler Youth, you think of the young pioneers in behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany and so on. Um, it's... Yeah, I, yes, I, and, and the young spies in 1984. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure in the French Revolution it happened as well. It, 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 it's... Um, I suppose it's it, it, it's designed like so many of these. Well, like like the slogan, like slogans like like Black Lives Matter or, or or whatever. It's designed to circumvent thought, isn't it? It's designed to here is a child. Children are are pure. Children are the future. Therefore, you must listen to what they say and ignore any reservations because these are children. And that's that's that in a way yes, is the Greta Thunberg appeal. appeal. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. But also, you know, I mean, the NGOs, non-governmental organizations are populated by young people. And these are all Morris's children. And the other very clever strategic thing he did was to make sure that non-governmental organizations, environmental NGOs, 
were allowed into, inserted into the policy-making process at, at the UN. Right. Um, so, you know, it, 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 it very, it, I mean, it was very clever. If you look at his, he's been, I mean, he was a strategic genius, no, no doubt about it. Um, and young people, and I mean, he was lecturing to young people at the 1972 conference in Stockholm. Uh, in fact, he encouraged a, a, a parallel, separate conference for young people, which significantly was, I think, uh, took place at a place they called the Hog Farm, which was, in fact, related to uh, a similar facility at Woodstock. So it was all part of the 60s revolutionary thing. Uh, and, of course, he understood that young people are tend to be idealistic and revolutionary. So if you can harness that to your agenda, they're, they're extremely useful. These people, they've been, they've been planning this for a very long time, haven't they? They've really been ahead of the game. That You think about, okay, you think about the Frankfurt School of the, the, the so-called cultural Marxists who came over uh, to the US, I think, what, before the war, during the war? Um, yes, I think, yeah. And then, and then you think that, that Maurice Strong was planning this stuff. Well, when, uh, I mean, okay, in the 1970s, when, when um, uh, what, did you, what was he doing in the 1970s? He was um, that thing in, in Norway or Sweden? Um, uh, the, uh, what, the, um, the Stockholm was the first UN conference on the human environment. Right, right. Uh, so, the, I mean, and so, yeah, I mean, he was, but, you know, it, for Strong, it wasn't an intellectual thing. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like political judo. You just, you just use your opponent and you, you work out intuitively uh, where their weaknesses lie. And I think, I think, you know, Strong was an intuitive genius at these things. I mean, he was completely uneducated. He left school at 14 mm. and he had sort of, you know, 50 odd honorary degrees to make up for it. <laughs> right. But, but he still, he just, he just picked ideas as they were useful to his agenda. So, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure he didn't, uh, didn't know too much about the Frankfurt school. Uh, but they were all, you know, they were all in the same. Yeah. He didn't need to really. He, he obviously movement. understood it in, Instinctively, but there were, other, there, yes. were there were various various parallel groups thinking on the same lines. I mean, I mean, there was the Club of Rome, wasn't he? I don't, I'm not sure how much he was associated with the Club of Rome, but they wrote that he was, book, he was a member of the Club of Rome. Was of he? Of course. What else? <laughs> of course. Limits to growth. When when did that come out? That was that was 1972, I think. Yeah. And yeah. of course, it said we were going to be we were going to be running out of everything before the end of the last century, and none of it came true. No. But it, it just doesn't matter, because I mean, I think this is is, is this sort of zero sum mindset means that if you if we haven't had disaster yet, it means bigger disaster is coming down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Which of course so, is so you, can't, you can't reason with these people. I mean, one of my one of my favorite sayings from Jonathan Swift is that it is foolish to try to reason somebody out of something they were never reasoned into. So there's no point in us quoting facts and statistics. Uh, yes. Because people are not listening. No, we almost may as, may as well give up now, hadn't we, Peter? Because our efforts no, well, are largely... Well, I, I do have some hope, because in the end, I mean, 
the practical consequences become apparent. Uh, but the problem is that, you know, we, we, we go back to make mistake after mistake. And of course, we, I mean, if, if you look at the state of the world, we've done extraordinarily well. Uh, but socialism is bound to come back at regular intervals, regular intervals, and and have another uh, go at taking over, which is just what is happening now. So, the the left wing stroke hard hard deep green caricature of people like you and me is that being of a free market small government disposition, we we don't like the so-called science on, on climate change. It doesn't suit our agenda because what it means is that governments have to take precipitate and expensive action, which is necessary. And we don't like this because we are so wedded to the free market that we, that even if the world is, is about to burn up, we would rather preserve our ideological position. What, what, what would be your counter to that? Well, I mean, the simple fact that it's uh, that it's untrue. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good one. That, you know, uh, the, the, the simple idea that you know, fans of the free market are somehow fundamentalist idiots who are opposed to any and all regulation. Um, and the other canard is that we believe that people are rational and markets are perfect. Well, this is complete and utter nonsense, you know. Going back to Adam Smith, Adam Smith realised that people were anything but rational and that the market proceeded by the process of higgling and, and bargaining, bargaining but, but it served people's collective interests. Um, and thus it was a good thing. Yes, but you, 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 can't, you can't persuade people on the left. I mean, what is easy, they, they call us deniers when it comes to climate, but they have no idea what we're meant to be denying. I mean, no one denies there's been a slight warming in the global temperature over the last century yeah. or that there's a greenhouse effect. I mean, the, the point is the human contribution and whether we can do anything, about, whether we can and should do anything about it, which should be a matter of cost-benefit analysis. Yes. But of course, you've got people like Stern who completely corrupt the, the process of cost-benefit analysis. Um, Yes. If you look at the actual science, um, you'll see, I mean, people like Bjorn Lomborg, of course, is, who's demonized somewhat, um, have calculated that, that if everybody kept their commitments under the Paris Accord, which, of course, they're not doing, and, and Canada in particular will not, will not do, then the impact on the temperature in the year 2100 is something like a fifth of a degree Celsius. Yes. Well, so funnily all enough, this sturm and drang mean nothing. We had we we we, we had um, Bjorn Lomborg on the on the podcast a couple of podcasts ago. I, I like I like Bjorn very much. Although I think it's I think he's rather too credulous and rather too willing to treat in good faith the prognostications of the of the climate establishment. He takes them at their word, and I'm not sure that he he really should. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I think that's possibly strategic on his part. Well, I think so, too. I mean, he's, he, try, he tries to feed the beast by saying, no, no, well, you, you shouldn't do this. But what you should do is just have huge programs of government investment in R&D. Well, if you look at the history of government investment in R&D, it really isn't terribly good. It's not good, in is fact, it? I sent, I, I, it's disastrous. I mean, there's a wonderful book... Um, called strangely titled Sex, Science and Profits. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the author. I think it, Vice Chancellor of the University of Buckingham. Um, 
anyway, point. I mean, it, it's a it's a wonderful book that points out what a terrible record governments have. Um, and and one of the examples he uses was was British uh, society in the sixties when Harold Wilson was around, and he was promoting the the white heat of technological revolution using the, using the Soviet Union as an example. And this gave us, you know, the first nuclear reactor, the first uh, supersonic jet, and what they all had in common were they were financial disasters. So government has a, but but as I say, I think I think Bjorn is is trying to give something to the left. In fact, I sent an email to him, or you know, to his uh, his website, because in his latest book he says that a problem with media coverage was that deniers were given too much attention for too long, but now they've been excluded from the media, and that's a good thing. He said that. And I said, well, how, how could you possibly say that? It's nonsense. But I think he knows it's nonsense, but he's just he thinks if he kowtows enough to his enemies, then they might acknowledge that, you know, he has a point. Yes, that doesn't happen. You don't, you don't pay Dane Gelt to the game. He doesn't love you or respect you anymore. I, I've been no, watching. No, I've been watching it, Last it, Kingdom on TV, and I can tell you those Vikings. They don't. They don't. You can't buy them off. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, absolutely. So this this bizarre idea that you can you can somehow achieve social license it's utterly naive. Yeah. So many corporations have have bought it. I mean, including the you know the Canadian oil industry, or maybe they think they have to buy it, but it's nonsense. That these well, there's a, there's a there's a cartoon in in How Dare You of the uh, NGO social license office with a big lineup of CEOs outside. And the point is, it's closed. And it will always be closed. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, should, I should point out to, to listeners who haven't quite grasped this, that How Dare You is the title of your collected columns, which is being, which is being published by the Globe, Global Warming Policy Foundation. Which... Policy Forum. Policy for, for, oh, sorry, policy for, for yeah, I know this. Yes, indeed, yeah, yeah, God. I, uh, <laughs> the, the GWPF, yeah, the forum. Um, but great institutions, both of those. But isn't it, have you noticed, uh, this is just a, a digression, because you made a point earlier, I was going to pick up and I completely forgotten what it was. Um, isn't it weird how here we are, maybe... 15 years on from when we uh, when we I, I don't know I've been writing about this for 15 years I guess or more and and still it's the same the same the same people uh, you, there's you there's me there's there was Christopher Booker he's now gone there's there's you've got Donna Laframboise you've got um, Joe Nova in Australia you've got a few Americans Steve Malloy um, uh, uh, Mark Morano um but there really, there really aren't that many of us. We still are a very niche group of, 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 of people fighting the sceptical argument. Um, you know, we've got a few sympathisers. Um, people, like, people like Charles Moore, I suppose, would be loosely allied to us. But they know, they're, they're not, they're not full-on, out-and-out, global warming, known sceptics. And... I find this a bit disappointing, given how important this issue is. It's not marginal, is it? I mean, it's key to our global economic future. Well, I mean, we've we've been, as you say, the group is is remarkably small, and it's amazing because we're meant to be the uh, the false front for a multi-billion-dollar 
uh, program of disinformation by the fossil fuel industry. We're all we're all paid by the Koch brothers, apparently. Although I'm I'm still waiting for my first check. But I mean, this is partly the, the success um, of the movement in in marginalising us. Uh, and it's I mean that's why the National Post was so great um, because we had a page that was not well. It was full of full of skeptics, you know. And we had people like uh, Ross McKittrick and Steve McIntyre. The men who broke the hockey stick. I mean, they were other contributors. So both Canadians. It, it, it was good it, that we had a. The, the, uh, this this sorry, comes back to our original original. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, really annoying. One of the bummers about doing these podcasts. The thing I really miss about pre-lockdown, I used to do all my my podcasts face to face. Just just I I, I had a you know. Um, adamantine rule that I wanted to be able to read people's facial signals and and so on, which you get when you're when you're next to somebody, you don't get it on the phone, unfortunately. And it, it, I, I'd love to be able to be doing this podcast with you in the flesh. It would be. It would well, be, you're not you're not missing much, James. But no, I I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. It one one does miss out there. Um, yeah. The 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 Canadian thing. It's weird that. You have produced the worst in the form of Maurice Strong, um, David Suzuki, and I, I haven't asked you about, about Mark Carney. I want, to, I want you to tell me about him in the moment. But you've also produced some of the best. I mean, uh, the great Mark Stein, who's been fantastic. Um, you've got Ross McKittrick and um, Steve McIntyre, the guys who who slaughtered the hockey stick. Um You've got Donna Framboise. Who else you've got? Um, there's uh, um, Tim Vivian Ball. Krause. Have you heard of her? D- Vivian Krause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Donna Framboise, we've mentioned. You've, and it, I was thinking about this uh, in between, the, the, in the gap with, uh, between our, the, the, the first half and this half, that it seems to be the kind of, uh, what would you call us, the, the Commonwealth, which has been... Um, or, or the old British Empire, which has been really fighting the fight best. I look at the Americans. Why is why is America not the, the United States? That is not produced more climate skeptics. I mean, we can name a few. Tony Heller is fantastic, for example. But given well, that I mean, you've got the Heartland Institute, yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah, no, but the, but there you are. You've got the Heartland Institute, but you haven't got, and, you, and there are some very good scientists in America. The late late Fred Singer, um, um, Richard Lindzen, the, Richard Lindzen, fantastic. But what I mean is, yes. there has not there have not been any American climate books, which are the equivalent of, say, My Watermelons or Christopher Booker's um, book on, on uh, why it was all rubbish. Um, or the, 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 for a nation of 300 plus million, they haven't really been... I don't get that. They didn't seem to be... And I've noticed this when I, I was thinking about this. When I write articles for Breitbart, um, because I, I mean, one of the reasons Breitbart recruited me is, is that they wanted a guy who could take the fight to the enemy on, on, on climate change. I mean, it's a, it's a very important subject. But I've noticed that there is... When I write about things like that meeting in La Jolla in, in California where the alarmists sat down and plotted 
things like the um, Exxon New campaign. I get zero interest. No, just, just, the readers just aren't interested. They like they like stories about things like um, Noah has been fiddling the data again, uh, and they've been exaggerating. The, the, they've been adjusting the raw data to make global warming look scary. They like they like simple weather is not doing what the alarmists tell us it's doing stories but they there seems to be a general lack of interest which i think is the is the the most interesting part of all about the climate change thing which is why would so many people lie to us why would why would governments lie to us why would industry why would why would the oil industry fall for this stuff do you not find that 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 are you not curious about that Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, but the thing is, I think a lot of them think they're not lying. They're telling, they're telling moral truth, you see. So, so if you think you're saving the world, if you think you're saving future generations, then you can, uh, you can bend the facts a bit. Um, but, and, and it occurs to me when you were, when you were talking about the uh, Canada versus the US, one of the reasons why we have reason to be or reason to generate skeptics is that the greatest attacks, two of the greatest attacks on uh, the resource industry have come here, first in the forestry industry, uh, and then in the oil sands, which has become a global target. And these attacks are in fact funded um, by US capitalist foundations. And ironically, they do much more damage, or maybe not ironically, maybe strategically, they do much more damage in Canada than they do in the US. So they're not, I think, as big a problem in the US as they are uh, in Canada. That's interesting. Yes, that, that is probably the reason, isn't it? It's, it's force majeure. It's just that you cannot help. If you're a capitalist in Canada, you really feel it. You really feel what the green movement is doing yes. to you. Yeah, I mean, and that's why we have people like you know. I mentioned Vivian Krauss, who did a great job of digging into the funding of Canadian non-governmental organizations. The Tides Foundation, I think. It, it was all coming out of. Sorry. The Tides Foundation was one of them, I think. But yes, the t- precisely the Tides Foundation, but the Tides was was just a front for lots and lots of other. Uh, often multi-billion dollar capitalist foundations, of course, which, I mean, and the irony is, of course, that these were founded by capitalists and now have become founts of anti-capitalism, although that, that really perhaps isn't too surprising uh, because the left is, is very good at accessing money. We have, I, I've, um, I've got to mention Patrick Moore, another fantastic Canadian co-founder of, of Greenpeace, <laughs> they hate being reminded of this, who has now come over yes, to the side no, no, of Yes, no, he's an actually one, wonderful character who has, who's been lambasted and had to put up with so much abuse. And yet he's, he's still fighting the good fight. And he's a, very, he's a very knowledgeable man. He is a scientist, apart from anything else. They often say that, oh, well, you, you don't have a degree in climatology, so you, you can't talk about this. And, and of course, that's nonsense because the real, the real basis of this is is human psychology rather than, uh, than physics and chemistry. I think. Yes. Yes. Well, indeed. The, the, before before I forget, um, tell me about you've you, you've you've been marking Mark Carney's card for some time before even before he became governor of the Bank of England. Tell me tell me about his genesis. Um, well, I think he used to work for Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Then, he, then somehow, I mean, he's a he's a genius at climbing the, the the greasy pole of bureaucracy. He became governor of the Bank of Canada, uh, and I said at the time that he's probably the world's most overrated man because he was somehow meant to have guided 
the Canadian economy through the 2007 and 8 crisis just by lowering interest rates and keeping them there. And the other thing he, he liked to do was lecture. So first he told Canadians that they weren't uh, spending enough. I mean, I, I suggested that he was, a, he was a fan of Mr. McCorber. Uh, and then he, was, then he told them uh, that they were borrowing too much. Um, but he's, he's the archetypal global governor. So it was inevitable that he would latch on to climate change, um, which, of course, now that he's left the Bank of England, uh, he's the, yeah, I think he's the UN special envoy for climate change, where he's the big promoter for this concept, sustainable finance, which, as I st- said, due to the nature of the, uh, the weasel word sustainable, actually means sustainable non-finance. Yes, well, now, because the you... Fact- You've got an economics background, and you might be the one person who can explain this to me. Um, I'm very worried about the way that um, the the financial sector has cottoned on to environmentalism and sustainability as a way of advancing what I consider to be a very dodgy um, globalist one world government cause and I'm particularly worried about this this thing that's being pushed by people like Mark Carney whereby fossil fuel companies need to be denied finance and finance should only be given to to green enterprises and and that every business should have a, a kind of um, release figures on on its carbon footprint and all all this stuff in other words applying a layer of regulation to to every industry and and making it more expensive to do business just talk talk to me about that a bit well uh, yes uh, it's it's another it's a brilliant part of the strategy that they um NGOs went around and uh, spoke to, or, or rather, they they browbeat uh, big investors, the big banks, into suggesting that they had to force those they loan money to, to to get in line, um, and and also get in, as you mentioned, the, the carbon disclosure project. Now, what that's designed to do is to not just admit carbon crime. But also, they send voluminous uh, forms to be filled in. And it's like begging the question. It's not, when did you stop beating your wife or your husband? It's, if you were to beat your wife or husband, what sort of injuries might they suffer? So then the companies have to list all the injuries that the husband or wife might suffer. And then they produce these documents saying, well, look, this is what... This is evidence that there's going to be a, a massive amount of spouse beating because this is what corporations say. I, so it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's pernicious, but again, it's very very clever. I one of one of the examples in my book of the nonsense of carbon disclosure is that I mean, we all know about the California wildfires. Uh, a year ago, Pacific Gas and Electric uh, went into Chapter Eleven protection. Um, allegedly having been responsible for a lot of these wildfires, which, as we know, are actually due to bad forest management. Uh, But according to the Carbon Disclosure Project, one of the biggest of these disclosing NGOs, Pacific Gas and Electric was was in the very forefront of climate responsibility. And they gave them a a glowing rating. So this suggests that their ratings are worse than useless. In fact, I, I said I couldn't understand why people hadn't sued the Carbon Disclosure Project for suggesting that Pacific Gas and Electric was a good investment. 
Well, I mean, they're a classic case of power without responsibility, aren't they? They can lecture and, 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 and lecture us and swing markets and bully corporations. But at the same time, <laughs> you can't sue them. You can't, they, they have no, they'll disappear. Yes, no, no, I mean, but corporations are comprehensively afraid. Oh, and there's, there's one other thing about Mark Carney that I forgot to mention. Mm-hmm. He is now Justin Trudeau's advisor for economic recovery. Right. This is almost satire because this man wants to close down Canada's most important export earning industry, the oil and gas industry. I, I, you know, I, I can't think of an analogy for how utterly ridiculous this is. So, well, yes, well... But then again, of course, Marie Strong was an advisor to a previous Liberal Prime Minister, so, so it certainly has precedence. So explain Canada to me, because I do not understand this This basic problem that I think of of Canada as being well you know people in lumberjack shirts top, chopping down trees <laughs> avoiding grizzly bears and I, I think of I think of the oil men of Alberta is that right uh, and um, yes. Calgary and and I think of I think of rugged outdoor no-nonsense polite but 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 yeah no-nonsense people so how come it's become one of the the most egregious examples in the Western world of, well, liber- liberalism going on, full-on communism? How does that happen? Well, I mean, I mean the thing, it, it's due in this country to political representation. Uh, Alberta is drained of resources, pays huge amounts of money to the rest of the country, but has, I don't think it has a single... MP in Justin Trudeau's government. So he doesn't really, I mean, his, his base of power is Quebec and Ontario. Uh, and so Alberta has been almost literally persecuted, and not just by Justin, but by his father, Pierre, you know, who had equally punishing policies towards the West, although then they, they just wanted to, uh, to drain money from the industry, but now they want to close it down completely. So, so the problem is, you know, I mean, in fact, Alberta has been talking. Some Albertans have been talking about the possibility of separation. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it will come to that, but they say, you know, we we have to do. We need either, we we need more political representation. Uh, so that that is a that is a big issue in Canada. But how will it achieve uh, that? Moment. Well, I, they could they could maybe reform the Senate to, to have it elected and uh, accountable. Um, but apart from that, it's it's difficult to see how it will happen. See, uh, I mean, they're, they're talking about doing things as almost as a as a preparation to separatism in terms of you know adopting their own taxation and running the police force um, and so on. But the, I mean, that, that there's a real asymmetry in in the Canadian system between the, the sort of it's it's the, the bureaucratic uh, bilingual elite uh, in the middle yes and those at the perimeter although the, I mean Vancouver I mean British Columbia is complicated because they're extremely environmental they're very they're very left-wing um, whereas Alberta has traditionally been you know conservative and Right wing, and in, and in fact, they are. 
I mean, you talk about, you know, lumberjacks and oil workers, they, they really are different. They are much more like Americans in Alberta and to a degree Saskatchewan. Yeah, no, well, I, um, I, 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 I so, get all that in, in, in the same way that, that Queenslanders, um, people in the outback of, of Australia, um, generally, you know, like, like Australians used to be. And, and, and the, unfortunately, the metropolitan areas have been infested, like, a bit like a zombie infestation with, with, with liberal lefties. Do you think there's any hope for any of these countries? I mean, and I'm thinking also of New Zealand. Once the, I'm using liberal in the in the American sense of the word rather than the classical liberal sense. Do you think once the liberals have have infested the system, is there any any going back? I mean, Canada. When did you last have a conservative government, an actual conservative government? Um, that was before. Uh, Justin Trudeau, the, the government of Stephen Harper, which was a minority for a while, but but that was, was a bit wet, wet, wasn't it? Wasn't Harper a bit wet? Uh, well, he, he was, you know, like all politicians, he did not dare to say he did not believe in climate science. I mean, before he came to power, he described Kyoto as a socialist plot, but of course he couldn't he couldn't say that once he was prime minister. But he was very clever in a way that he negotiated his way round these ridiculous uh, international agreements. He did what what is called ragging the puck, which is an ice hockey term, right. which means that you you keep hold of the puck so that no one can score. So I mean, essentially, he he controlled the agenda so that the opposition couldn't score in his net net, or or so he couldn't score an own goal. But I mean, he generally he was. Yeah, I think a pretty good prime minister. And ironically, I mention in, in How Dare You that uh, I've got a few articles pointing out that he was absolutely hated. He was subject to Harper derangement syndrome, which is a bit like Trump derangement syndrome, except Stephen Harper could not possibly have been less like Donald Trump. I mean, he was a, he was a mild-mannered man. Uh, well, I mean, he was meant to be a bit of a tyrant in the cabinet room, but that's uh, that's reasonable enough. But he never uh, pursued extreme policies in any way. He did try to streamline the regulation process so that pipelines could be built, but he was comprehensively beaten by the non-governmental organizations. So one of the big problems in Alberta is that their oil is, is landlocked. The NGOs have been brilliantly successful uh, by legal and other means in stopping pipelines going to any coast, uh, the Gulf Coast, the West Coast, or the East Coast. And this has cost Alberta literally tens of billions of dollars since their oil can only go uh, to the US where it's blocked up and the price has plummeted. Um, That's so, awful. yeah, I mean, so, so, so Stephen Harper was, was, was good, but, um, you know, I mean, of course, this is a revelation to most people because for most people, Canada is more complex than interesting, and I, I understand that. <laughs> Uh, but but um, but yes, it, 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 uh, that was our that was our conservative our last conservative prime minister who was there for a while, who managed to hold off the forces of uh, of darkness. But think think of now all the we, then he was followed by Justin. Think of all the leftist social programs you could you could fund. 
with if 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 Alberta was allowed to achieve its full economic potential. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking like a leftist here, but well, no, I I couldn't because uh, I mean that would be I'd I'd have to be insane. <laughs> but but you see what I'm getting at, don't you? The the Canada's Canada's yeah. liberal lefties are denying denying the poor inter alia the opportunity of of having a better better life courtesy of the of, of Canada's great natural resources. Oh no, you're absolutely right. And this was an argument that conservatives tried to put forward. They said, you know, if we the more buoyant our uh, oil and gas industry is, the more funds it will provide for for welfare and for hospitals and so on. But that's, again, that's a rational argument and they're not dealing with rational people. They're dealing with people who just want to kill the industry and have, in a lot of cases, have no concept of what that actually will, will mean to the industry. I mean, to the country, it would be a complete disaster. Tell me about Climate Barbie. Well, she's now moved on to another, another portfolio. And of course, we're not meant to say that because that's horribly sexist of us. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, basically she was hard, she was hard left. And the Barbie part to me always seemed that, that what she said sounded like a ring pull tweet. Right. Like uh, climate change is real and man-made and that's the end of the story. There's another actually, another woman that you probably haven't heard about who is our governor general. Uh, Tell me. Who is the Queen's representative in Canada. Oh, and she is wonderful because she has been behaving like a cross between Lady Macbeth and Imelda Marcos, uh, spending money, terrorizing her staff. And of course, she's also weighed in on the uh, on the climate issue. And the reason she is meant to have credibility is because she was an astronaut. Uh, and she's compared climate denial to, uh, to believing in creationism um, and herbal medicines and various other and various other I mean, oh, astrology as well i think yeah right but i point out in in one of the columns in the book that if distance traveled from the surface of the earth was any qualification uh for opining on climate then she's somewhat outranked by harrison schmidt and buzz aldrin <laughs> two skeptics who have been to the moon yeah and i suspect you know being being sexist but also accurate for a moment i'm sure she only got on the program because um because she had the right chromosomes i'm sure it wasn't she i'm sure she wasn't the best person oh, no no perish the thought perish. but anyway i mean she's she's come she's come back to haunt uh justin somewhat uh because of these scandals but he's uh, he's standing he's standing by her and he, it's not the only scandal that he's got as I, I don't know if you know about his other scandals but um what well he's 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 black have you he? heard of the the <laughs> he, he likes blacking up. Our first black prime minister, no. No, no, but it, there was also an enormous scandal uh, with something called the WE, W-E, charity, okay. which the government gave a um, uh, a contract to dole out $900 million to university students to volunteer, rather strange, to be giving out... Um, a, um, to be paying people to volunteer. Yeah. But anyway, it then transpired that this organization, we had paid his mother and his brother as speakers. 
and that the finance minister, his daughter, worked for the organisation, and that neither of them had recused themselves from this decision. So there's been, a, you know, one of the reasons he, he prorogued Parliament a little while ago. And the real reason was because he wanted, he was getting some questioning from a parliamentary committee from the Conservatives that he couldn't answer. But the theory was that he prorogued Parliament so he could come up with great a great new strategy for Canada's economic future. And this is due to be unloaded on us next Wednesday, September the 23rd. And that's when where people are really scared that this Green New Deal might raise its ugly head. I think COVID, a resurgence of COVID is it might stop that. But um, well, what would it look like this Green New Deal for you? Well, I, you know, presumably it would be more about uh, putting more money into into wind and solar, which mm. of course is you know it's it's almost beyond belief that you would take technologies that were inefficient and very expensive before COVID and somehow imagine that they might, might become less expensive and more efficient after COVID. It makes absolutely no sense. But then again, so much of this makes no sense unless you see it as essentially a power grab to put the world under bureaucratic control. But yeah, that and presumably a bunch of other fiddling, maybe uh, That's we it. carbon tax already. I think, I think you've, you've nailed it there. That that environmentalism it is a the environmental movement is a power grab to put the world under bureaucratic control, and it's 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 jobs for the boys and girls, isn't it? That it's it's jobs for your people, for the for the clerisy, the modern clerisy, people with environmental studies degrees, which would otherwise be worth in any in a free market, environmental studies degrees would be absolutely worthless. So that sustainability would not exist, or at least it would not yes. need to be imposed. That's it's as simple as that. And indeed, I mean, again, we go we go back to strong. I mean, strong in many ways created the environment as a big time career. But we have every global international bureaucracy is is on board with the climate agenda because it means power for them. I mean, bureaucracies don't grow by solving problems, but just by being seen to address them. So they have more conferences and studies and agendas. Uh, and they don't necessarily want to do anything. They just want to be seen to be doing something. I mean, if you if you look at the bureaucratic reality of sustainability within the UN, it's absolutely farcical. There was a study a few years ago that established that no one knew uh, how many uh, offshoots of the sustainable agenda there were uh, or what they were doing, or whether what they were doing made any sense. But in a way, they, they don't really care about that. As long as there are bureauc- bureaucratic offshoots and studies being paid for by someone, then that's all they want. And they don't, they don't see the damage because they have no comprehension or love of economics. Do you, I have to say, Peter, I talking to you... Um, via what is there some sort of translate a cable under the under the atlantic or something but i i do i I do feel talking to you rather as i might have done in the late 70s early 80s talking to somebody behind the iron iron curtain and i'm sure it's not that bad in canada and i know my our own country the, the land of your birth is completely ruined as well now but tell me how bad is it 
to be uh, somebody of our political persuasion living in Canada. How maddening is is Justin Trudeau? Is it as bad as I think? Um, the amazing thing is that no matter how many what how much he screws up, I mean, he's clearly not not the brightest uh, blade on the wind turbine, but he's being completely he's being completely manipulated. But since he has a certain charisma, um, the Canadian people seem to want to forgive him again and again. But you know, I guess he's he's at some stage he has to run out of uh, credibility. I'm not quite sure when that will happen. We have a new um, a new leader of the Conservative Party who you would never have heard of, a man called Erin O'Toole, um, who seems uh, you know pretty reasonable. Of course, he's come out saying that he he really is a is a believer in in climate change because he can't say anything else. Um, but I think Justin is a, is frightened that there might be an election. He said he doesn't want an election. He's uh, he's supported by the uh, the NDP, which is the the hard socialist party because he has a minority. Um, so I, you know, I, there's there's always hope, but it, it takes the average citizen to catch on to the damage. And uh, of course, now it's it's me- it's messed up with with COVID. So it's it's difficult to differentiate between um, bad green policies and you know the, the impact of the COVID. Lockdown. Well, you. So well, you know, it, it, it's very uncertain at the moment. Well, COVID has been manna from heaven for the for the Enviro loons. We, 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 we certainly in in the UK, for example, we've seen countless city councils, in, in, including um, Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, using using the coronavirus as an excuse to to strip away. All that uh, well, to convert roads into cycle lanes and 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 to to declare city centres car free zones and to remove parking spaces and and and, and so on, um, because they know they can get the, get away with this stuff because they're not being scrutinised. They're not they're not having the full council meetings. They're not. It's it's a it, we, we we see this actually with with Boris Johnson's government as well. But because the government is not. Parliament is not meeting in 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 its full numbers. But issues simply aren't being debated. So the green agenda is being pushed through willy nilly. I'm sure it's the same in Canada. It's exactly the same here. It's exactly the same thing is happening in Toronto, in terms of proliferating bike lanes and not being able to to drive anywhere anymore. Because well, I mean, you know, I mean, there's there's there's, there's less driving because of COVID. But as you say, they've taken the opportunity to to use bike lanes. When it might make more sense to uh, to make make it easier to travel by car rather than public transport. I mean, that's that's one area of the agenda that that is in a bit of trouble. That they want us all to travel by public transport, but uh, that might be dangerous for your health. Well, yeah, no, I think I, yeah, um, I think you and I probably disagree on that one. I I, I think it's the most overrated um, non-story in the history of the world. And I think this is the biggest misuse of government resources in the history of the world. I think it's, for me, this is, this is, uh, the the whole green thing was a dry run for, for, for this. This is, this is, it, it follows the same, the, the, the same structure. It has the same structure in that it's based on models, not on, not on, on, on reality. So, so you had Neil. Well, well, in fact, 
with his, with his with his modelled with his with his modelled pandemic outcome, um, which which is which is the basis for U, for UK policy, and that actually probably frightened the Trump administration as well into taking action. I don't know what I don't know who persuaded Canada, but no, you're I mean you're absolutely right, and there are lessons that we should learn from COVID. Uh, authorities went with the most alarmist science and used it to impose the most draconian policies of lockdown. Which didn't work. Uh, and in some ways, you know, the climate situation, so they, they've used the most alarmist models and now they want to lock down the fossil fuel industry. Yes, yes. Well, and I, 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 th- I think, you see, that that none of this would have happened in 2020. There would never have been this this overreaction to to what is essentially just bad seasonal flu. Um, there would never have been this overreaction if people hadn't been softened up by 20 years. I mean, what was the Rio Earth Summit was in 1992, wasn't it? Um, so we've, we've had yes. 18 years of people being drip-fed we're all doomed propaganda. Government must do more. We must take action to save the planet, blah, blah, blah. And and I, I think that's softened people up ready for what we're experiencing now. Yes. I came, well, I came across this great phrase that de Tocqueville used, you know, I mean, 150 years ago. Uh, and he talked about one of the dangers in American democracy that he saw was this thing called administrative despotism, which is a beautiful phrase. And I think that's now gone global. We have administrative despotism. Right. What, so, so what, what did he, how did he describe administrative despotism? Did he tell me a bit more? Well, he said that, he said that you know, the, the government will gradually put more and more rules and regulations mm. on society until in the end people are incapable of action. They're like sheep. And that, I mean, is the long-term objective, I think, of... Uh, of the green agenda, certainly that that people should be should should do what they're told. Yes, uh, I'm. I, I mean, when it comes to that, that. Carry on. Sorry. No, no, carry on. I was going to say, um, uh, when it comes to that uh, that bizarre definition of you know sustainable development as meeting the needs of the present while without jeopardizing the needs of the future. As I said, they, no one can have any idea what our needs actually are, but their solution is simple. They will tell us what our needs are. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very pessimistic, Peter, aren't, aren't you? I mean, I've been fighting this fight. I, I, I honestly thought... I had, this, I had this really depressing experience. I, I was going to write a piece um, for... On the, on the 10th anniversary of Climate Gate, I wanted to write a piece for a, a magazine editor and uh, for, for a conservative magazine, and, uh, which I shan't name. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's the 10th anniversary of, of Climate Gate. It, it, was, it was kind of my big scoop. I mean, I didn't invent the story, but I, but I popularised it. And, and this, was, this was really key in our understanding of in, the environmental movement and blah, blah, blah. And he, and he, he didn't want to run it. He, he, uh, uh, and the bit he particularly objected to was when I, I started out by saying, I really thought that when Climate Gate broke, we had 
won the argument that there was no way the Green Movement could come back from this because the facts were out there. They had been manipulating the data, that the that the, the scientists were were intellectually and morally corrupt. They were torturing the data till it screamed. There was a whole in- industry which was which was pushing this this agenda. It was it was clear they were shutting out honest science out of the debate by 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 making sure they weren't published by denying them peer review etc so it was just we we caught them red-handed and i thought i thought how can they get away with this any any longer 10 years on i would say that it's got it's got worse they've they've more or less won well you're right i mean the thing is there were those bogus reviews of Climate Gate, which were all whitewashes. Yeah. And then you had the mainstream media uh, saying, oh, well, nothing to see here. Yeah. They've been exonerated. And of course, it's nonsense. They weren't exonerated. But now, you know, if you mention Climate Gate, they, they, you're probably written off instantly as some sort of wacky denier. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, having control of the. Um, well, there's, there's this concept called the psychology of taboo which is very important, which is that some perspectives are framed as being beneath contempt and beyond examination. So that's the uh, climate skeptics have been put in that category. So, so they, must sim- they must not be listened to. I mean, you are, you are being morally tainted if you countenance anything that they say. Well, it's interesting, uh, isn't it? So that we've been, as I say, marginalised. We've been yeah. anathematised. Yeah, you, you're right. We've been, we've been put under interdict, if you like. Um, yes. Excommunicated. We're, 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 we've been unpersoned. And it's noticeable, isn't it? That I mean, OK, apart from Mike Schellenberger, who's coming at it, from the left from you know he's he's got he's he's got his pro nuclear agenda which is which is which suits me but um th- there really haven't been many new skeptics have that to, to join our ranks it's the same people um and 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 some of us like like fred singer are, are, are dying off in fact quite a few of the people were well, the the heartland conference i attended in chicago um a, f- a few years ago a lot of the people have since since died uh, it's generally generally yes. generally people who've got reached professors have reached that stage in their career where they they you know they don't don't need to worry about getting sacked anymore but younger people they've, they've got too much to lose yes i mean and they're born into a world and they're educated into a world where it's just impossible to question the science or policy of of climate change yeah you know, it's it's the it's the it's the water into which they they were born swimming. So, skepticism is dim- well. You know, I mean, the, the most pe- pessimistic view is that this will just go on to typical socialist disaster, and then we'd we'd have to start again. Um, I, well, I again to get back to Morris one final time, perhaps. Um, he wrote a biography called "Where on Earth Are We Going?" and in this biography, he has. A positively bizarre chapter, which is described as a report to the shareholders of Earth Inc. in the year 2031. And of course, he, he foresees that he wrote this 20 years ago, but he so 10 years in the future, he sees a world of complete horror. But he sees one glimmer of hope. 
And that's the fact that two thirds of the world's population will have been wiped out. Now, anyone who thinks that two th billions of people dying is a glimmer of hope has a very strange view towards mankind. And of course, simple hatred of mankind plays a big part in the environmental movement. Absolutely. Their whole hair shirt mentality is anti-human, anti anti-prosperity, anti-fun, isn't it? It's about, it's about guilt. It's about yes. It's about it was worse than guilt. It's about self hatred, which of course is is um, yes. taken to extreme by the voluntary human extinction movement, which 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 was actually re real, wasn't it? People were sort of signed up to this thing whereby um, they were vowing not to have children and considering suicide themselves because after all we are. The earth has a cancer and the cancer is man, as the Club of Rome once famously yes. put it. Well, no, I think that was a pretty useful movement. I would encourage them to get on with that. Well, yeah. Uh, well, I... Get themselves out of, the, out of the gene pool. You know, some some documents were discovered. David Rose wrote about this for the Mail on Sunday, um, that, that some documents were, were leaked onto the internet um, from Extinction Rebellion. And as part of their next move, Extinction Rebellion were planning to have some some dupe commit suicide at a uh, in public in order to, in order to raise awareness of of the plight of the planet i mean that's what they i i suppose they must believe this stuff um yes well i well, it just occurred to me when you talk about sin and uh, i've I, you know part of part of my book is a collection of so-called climateers and the last one is the Pope. Now, if you read the uh, encyclical that he wrote in 2015, or, well, he didn't write, he didn't come anywhere near it, you know, it, it could be written by any UN agency. And in fact, it probably was written by the same people who write UN documents. But it's astonishing that the Pope would espouse views that would actually increase poverty. You know, that it's absolutely appalling. But I, I just think he's witless. He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't read things. He doesn't listen to the radio or watch television. He just doesn't know. He's just being manipulated. Well, he's a creature of his... Of, by by he, the curia. He's a creature of the age, though, isn't he? I mean, I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury is no better, and he ought to be because he's a, a former oil man. Although, having said that, the oil industry is about as green and woke as any, isn't it? I mean, you you listen to the pronouncements of the CEO of Shell and the CEO of, of, of BP uh, and, and, and also the previous CEO of BP, you know, um, Lord Brown, who, who rebranded it Beyond Petroleum, that all they, all they want yes. to do is, 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 is tell, tell shareholders about st stranded assets and about how, how, the oil, how their, <laughs> their, their key business model is completely screwed and how from, from now on they're trying to go and move away from oil, but, but be prepared to take a hit, shareholders, because you're wasting your money, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's partly it's pure hypocrisy. I, I have the example in the book of um, Sir Philip Watts. Do you remember him? He was, the, uh, he was the head of Shell. He was the head of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. He was a big man at Davos. And he said that um, Shell was defined by its promotion of sustainable development and of corporate social responsibility. And then he was found to be lying to the shareholders and to have cooked the books. 
That's so. I mean, hypocrisy, but beyond hypocrisy, I mean, a lot of them are simply scared. I, I use the analogy of mud wrestling with a pig when it comes to dealing with NGOs. Uh, the point is that they they can't afford to mud wrestle with the pig because they all get covered in mud. And the pig not only likes it, but the pig uses it as a fundraising opportunity. So they are, this idea of enormous corporate power is nonsense. They are, big corporations cower persistently before NGOs. Yes, yes. And I wonder how, this is what Douglas Murray has been talking about a lot recently, that people need to grow a pair. People, corporations need to grow a pair. <laughs> Individuals need to grow a pair. I think it, I, I, I think Douglas is. It's easy to say that when you're Douglas Murray. You know, he, he's 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 found he's found a very clever way of of saying the things he does without putting himself so far beyond the pale that he can't earn a living. I think um, if if he if he really told it like it was on every issue, I think he he too would end up being being cancelled. But uh, I think, nevertheless, his 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 broader point is 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 well made. That that we really do need to stand up. I mean, you, you, well, you and I do it, but more people need to do it, don't they? Well, I mean, we can because we don't matter. You know, we're just we're just journalists. But if you're running a large company and yeah. you know that if you express scepticism about climate change, then you'll have a mob outside your office, you'll have your customers intimidated, then you begin to understand why, you know, the, why they can't be such stout defenders of, of free enterprise. Well, of course, and the other thing is that uh, one of the great misconceptions is that capitalism is what capitalists pronounce. When, of course, some of the biggest enemies of capitalism happen to be capitalists. I mean, capitalism is a system uh, in which capitalists are the main actors, but that doesn't mean they have the slightest clue of, of how the broader system works. They know how to make how to make profits and how to economize and how to market and so on. Yeah, how to but suck. But they have no necessary knowledge of the invisible hand. No, well, that's 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 the joy of the invisible hand, isn't it? That 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 none of us. Yes. Yeah. But, well, it's 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 the it's the inconceivable hand for many people. I mean, it's it's written off morally as being some sort of con job. Yes. Uh, so it requires considerable sophistication to begin to understand what it actually is and how it works and how it produces good from people pursuing their own interests. Well, yeah, or it requires simple faith, doesn't it? It's, it's like we, we, we can't understand it, but it, it does seem to work. And that seems to be an eminently reasonable position, that it works. That historically, it's been shown to work far better than planned systems, which is what, of course, Hayek was arguing, that... Yes, of course, but but the problem I mean the problem is since we don't understand how it works, we can we can benefit from it without understanding. I mean we I think I use the analogy that it's, it's in the same way that you don't need to read Gray's analogy in order to keep living. You don't need to read Adam Smith in order to operate in a in a market economy. You just you buy and you sell and you work and you do stuff. Um, yeah. And there's no need for you to understand it, but that's of course dangerous. Because if you don't understand it, then it can come under attack and you might not understand what's going on. And before you know it, it's been locked off. Yes. Yes. Well, I think the, the point you made, at the, made, made near the beginning about um, 
Um, I completely lost my lost my thread here. Um, what did you say about the beginning? That, yeah, that that people prefer economists who 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 argue for greater government intervention than for ones yeah. who who say no, just leave, just leave, just leave it alone, just don't do anything, don't don't create more jobs in order to monitor the economy and guide it. You don't need them; they're not necessary. Just leave it alone. Yeah, I know absolutely. I mean, there are the economy. I mean, not just Hayek. There was um, James Buchanan was another Nobel winning uh, economist who who came up with the theory of public choice, which said, seems to make the startlingly obvious uh, claim that bureaucrats are every bit as self interested as anybody in the free market, and he was absolutely ostracized <laughs> for this observation. You know, they they live in this. They dwell in this delusion or self-interested delusion that somehow they are above self-interest and they are just interested in the welfare of mankind, whereas the capitalists are just grubby, greedy individuals uh, who must be uh, tied in every way possible. I fear, I fear Peter, um, that we are going to remain anomalous that, that that actually things are just going to get much, much worse and that the only people who agree with the kind of shit that we're saying are the kind of people who are listening loyally um, to this to this podcast. <laughs> and I feel I feel rather sad that that's 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 the best I can offer, that it's just going to get worse. And I, I don't see I, I think we've set the controls for the heart of the sun. I don't think there's any way we can we can pull out of this this. Um, well, no, I mean, we've, until we until we see until we see economic disaster, and then of course that will be blamed on on capitalism. Yes. So yes, I mean, it's it's easy to be to be pessimistic. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. So we just have to keep up the good fight. Yeah, and, and anyway, and, yeah, and and just be be jolly, which I failed to be. I failed on that score. I'm sorry I, for that lapse, people. Um, <laughs> you know, anyway, um, if you would like to buy um, Peter Peter Foster's excellent collection of essays. How dare you? When when when's it out, Peter? I think it's it could be coming out next week. Oh, well, uh, I'm not quite sure of the official date, but I think we're 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 about to about to publish, and be damned. Um, that's good. Yes, um, I'm just flicking through now. I see I see Mark Carney's fundamentalist regulation. Mark Carney's threat of sustainable finance. Yeah, it's great. Um, I'm I'm. I'm glad that I'm glad that you're t- you're saying this stuff. So thank you. And um, by the way, if you like this podcast, and of course you do, don't forget you can get early access to it on if if you sign up to my Patreon or my Subscribestar, and you you join a delicious, delightful community of like-minded people. You know, I mean, community is normally a shit word. It means bad things, but this is a good community. <laughs> um, and um, yeah. Um, so I hope you enjoy this podcast and uh, please support me and um, see you all next week thank you thank you very much Peter Foster thank you James thanks bye bye